collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. everyone. I am so excited to uh, have you on the show today. It's our last show of the month. And as such, we bringing back all the guests that we've had this month where we focused on the child welfare system. And we have here with us Luanda, who's a biological parent. Hi, Luanda. Hi, everyone. And uh, Jasmine, who's a foster parent. Hi, Jasmine. Hi, Rita and the listening audience. And uh, Richard Wexler, who's an advocate and an activist who's been working for 40 years and wrote a book on the child welfare system. Hi, Richard. How are you doing today? Very well, thanks. Great to be back. All right. It's really an honor to have this amount of power all on the same show together. Like, I'm really, really excited. There's a lot of expertise right now here. And uh, in the face of uh, friendship and commitment, I can get a little overly excited and enthusiastic. So that's like the big smiles you have coming from me. But we're also talking about something that's really serious and, you know, has some really deep repercussions, in particular, the impact of being involved with the child welfare system has had on both of your lives, like Jasmine and Luanda. So, you know, don't let my excitable, easily excitable energy uh, come across as offense. Good. Luckily, you guys blow me well enough. The concept of collective power is that from week to week, we show different aspects of the system. And then the last show of the month, kind of bring all these different aspects together so we can show the bigger picture and shine the light on this bigger system. So that's what we'll be doing today. As a starting point, I'd love if you could just introduce yourselves a little bit so the audience can just get to know you a little bit. And if you could say uh, one or two highlights from your show that stood out for you, and then I'll kind of wrap it up at the end, uh, doing the same, doing some highlights from your three shows, just so we can start weaving threads together. I am Lawanda Connolly, a lifelong resident of Philadelphia, the proud mother of three. I became entangled with the child welfare system in 2007 first accepting their help and then becoming their victim. What I took away from my show, it just opened up some raw emotion for me when I realized the story behind my daughter being taken. I didn't always know the true story and I just recently found out. So that was eye-opening for me and I'm happy. I've gotten really nothing but positive feedback from my story. So thank you audience. I first got involved in this, as you know, more than 40 years ago as a journalist. 
And it was my reporting on the child welfare system that led me into advocacy. When I came to see how much terrible harm is done to children when they are needlessly torn from everyone they know and love, consigned to the chaos of foster care, bounced from foster home to foster home, often emerging years later unable to love or trust anyone. And what I realized is that the two single biggest problems in the system are the confusion of poverty with neglect and the racial bias that permeates the system. As a result of that, there are very large numbers of children in foster care who never needed to be taken away. It is a nationwide problem. Philadelphia in some ways stands out in that it takes children at one of the highest rates among America's big cities. And I'm Jasmine Banks. I'm am a former foster parent of 15 uh, children and an adoptive parent of five older sons. Adopted twice for the first time, one the second. And I, too, became a victim of the system. It's so interesting. I think people don't know that foster parents also become exploited and victimized and sort of get trapped in what I call the parent wars. A lot of violent uh, behavior, psychological abuse exploitation of many of the foster parents. And so I just started uh, over the years just observing first and then documenting uh, many of the challenges that my family and I, my children and I ran into. And I hope to release a book one day as well from the lived experience of watching all sides, the biological parents, the other foster parents, the system reps in child welfare, then I went over to child mental health and juvenile justice. And of course, I, our family has experienced uh, the shelter systems, group homes and residential treatment facilities. So because my sons had so many experiences um, in our home and prior to being in our home, uh, it was just so much uh, information, so much paper trail, so many complaints. That, so it's just endless. It's an endless challenge. I'm Dr. Rita, and I'm your host. I've been listening to the stories of parents who lost their children to foster care for the past 20 years, and I've been writing a book for the past 12 to 13 years. It's just about done, so I'm looking forward to that. What really got me into this work is in part what got Richard into this work, um, which is that, you know, when I talked with the first parent 20 years ago, I was so outraged by what I was hearing that I was just really thought like something needed to happen. And then I think over the past 20 years, the reason why I've been in the work has kind of shifted and I've had to learn how to face my own healing up more than be an activist or an advocate. I'd like to offer just like a few highlights from your different episodes that were to me like most earth shaking. Some highlights that were most earth shaking and then I'd invite you all to just kind of talk and weave them together in whichever way works for you. So the first was Luanda, you're sharing that like your child was literally abducted. So yes. you shared how your youngest kind of went to the door. The social worker called her name from outside the door. She opened the door and then literally picked her up and put her in her van while yes. her brother was like knocking on the van windows to get his sister back, which is just like a really traumatic experience. Like I can't even imagine what that was like for your kids. 
And that's literally abduction. Like by any other measure in any other system, by any other person, that would be illegal and would be um, criminally persecutable, I guess is the expression. I've been in this work for 20 years and like when I get shocked, I'm always shocked that I'm shocked because <laughs> I always think that I've seen and heard so much that I, I'm no longer shockable. And not only was I kind of weeping just for you and what your family has been through, but I, I was literally shocked that that had happened. From Jasmine's show, I think one of the things that really stood out for me was that you called it psychological warfare. Yes. And there was this kind of moment of like, I feel like magic in the show with you where you highlighted that you kind of had to become, I don't remember if you'd use this term or I kind of um, was creating it inside of what you were sharing, but like you became an investigative journalist of your own life. Absolutely. Like you huh. started writing somewhat obsessively, not in a bad way, but like writing oh, intensely. Yes. And you started mapping everything and looking for patterns and you were just yes. like looking at the bigger picture, researching like crazy, documenting like crazy, and just really becoming the investigative journalist of your own life. One of the patterns you started noticing when you did that level of in-depth research was, oh my God, there's a psychological warfare here at play. Yes. That is literally like I'm trying to be talked out of my own experience, out of my own knowledge, out of what I know to be, you know, true and valid for my kids. And in your case, it was your adoptive and your foster kids. Yes. But there was also a pattern that was really fascinating that happened to both, uh, that I saw a commonality between Luanda's story and Jasmine's story, is that both of you, the moment in which you put your feet down that your child actually needed more care. Right. <laughs> the social worker turned against you. Yes. Right. Yes. So the Absolutely. very fact that you put your feet down and yes. became advocates for what you knew to be true for your children. Yes. And it was actually more services, not less services, not fewer services. Mm -hmm. DHS turned against you for the, like your social worker shifted their dynamic for the very fact that you put your feet down. Could I just add something? To sure. That? Go so for it. one of the things that I'm writing about was in terms of patterns was that um, once I adopted, I adopted because I was running away from foster care and child welfare. I thought that I, life would be different for me as an adoptive parent. Proverbial statement, I jumped from the, the frying pan into the flames. So things got totally worse. Some of the challenges that I faced was as an adoptive parent. Mm. People were using one son in particular when I was trying to get services for him because you know he's being pushed out of schools and having so many challenges and the teachers are demanding that I do something. I don't know what to do. I don't, I'm not familiar with the systems, so I'm very clueless. And uh, so I try to get services for him, so I was very adamant. I didn't want him to fail. I didn't want him to go to prison. I didn't want him to be homeless, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, just being so adamant about uh, getting him s some sort of treatment. He continued to fail this particular son. And then this social worker who was very angry with me, this is an adoption. This is not... DHS. This is not child welfare. Mm -hmm. This is child mental health. So that's why I write about and compare and show the patterns. This is in child mental health, the discrimination that I faced. Uh, she didn't want him there and uh, she was overwhelmed. And I mean, I'm sure it's a lot of things that I don't know about. I just can imagine. And uh, so she, uh, in her anger and fury with me for not taking him back, 
and demanding that he get help, she then turned on me. And then there was a false allegation of abuse, which required two investigations from the state and from the county. And then the county worker, this is adoptive parent now, she also turned against me. Luckily, the state worker was very professional and very supportive. So I have to give her the credit for that. But the county worker who came in the house, she, in court, because I've been the family court, I've been through the mud. My husband and I have not given birth to any children. We adopted five sons and have been through a pure hell. And that's why I call it psychological warfare. So I started documenting what was happening in as an adoptive parent, which was far worse than when I was a foster parent. So it's unbelievable. I just wanted to clarify that many of the workers have similar behavior traits and similar responses. And there's a certain similar desperation that I started noticing about them. And that's what I started recording. And I gave it my own labels, you'll see in the book, and how I define their behaviors, but not in, uh, in foster care. I never realized we had that much in common, Jasmine, because yes. it was my son was in the residential treatment facility. Yes. He went AWOL. I pushed for him to be placed back in. Yes. It is my belief that the social worker faced some type of disciplinary action for him coming home. Mm -hmm. And not only was she not helping me get him back into placement, but she turned all her venom towards me. And all of a sudden I was the crazy mom and I was mentally unstable. And it's like, all I was trying to do was get my son help. Yes. How does that make me unstable? Wow. That's. I can only add that I've heard my, first of all, our stories, I've heard them dozens and dozens of times mm -hmm. as if people were in my Senior. own mind, had my own experience. Mm. So because I was uh, coordinating storytelling training for the county, so I had access to, I mean, really thousands of stories. I've heard dozens, nearly a hundred of, I'm sitting there listening to people telling our stories, similar experiences and trying to get their children help. Venom is turned against the parent. And I was so shocked. Why are you? I'm trying to get my son help and you're turning yes. against me. So you're very shocked. That's exactly how it's and it's very, you're very unprepared for it. No one has ever warned me. Like, watch out if you don't do what they tell you. It's like if I didn't do what they asked me to do and I disagreed. It's like, who are you to disagree? As if you have no power, no autonomy, no agency. You're just supposed to listen and obey. I was used to that in foster care now. I'm really tripping out. I'm like, this is an adoption as well? If I knew then what I knew now, I would never have pushed for my son, for their help to get him back into placement. If I had known that they would turn on me the way they did, sure. I would have let things lie. Here's what I find so striking about what Jasmine says. I hear all the time, Jasmine's made a connection that too few, I think, foster and adoptive parents make. And what I mean is this. I hear all the time, I read accounts all the time of foster parents talking about how badly they were treated by the system. But what, and what I always want to say to them is, now think about that. The system really needs you. If that's how they're treating you, how do you think they're treating the birth parents? Absolutely. Yes. Trust me. I, that's yes. why I definitely you'll see that in the book. I definitely said, oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. In fact, the majority <laughs> of the people that I listened to were birth parents. Exactly. Mm. Made that connection. But most, I would say, foster parents somehow don't. No, I think you have to really have 
certain experiences, like, for example, our children, as you can see, we both have children with behavioral health challenges, mm -hmm. and therefore we've had to go into certain other systems. Some of the foster parents do not go into those systems, and that's why. They may have children who have challenges, but you're more protected. When I was a foster parent, we're hidden more and we're sheltered. So you don't have certain experiences. You don't have right. certain rights and power. But when you're an adoptive parent, you're more like, a, you know, you're a legal parent. So you have more rights and responsibilities. Of course, if you're very passionate and really love, I won't say that people don't, but when you really have a deep love for your children, you start having these worst case scenarios of them going to prison and being homeless and you start panicking and you'll do almost anything to safety or protection. So you're in this very protective mode. And uh, like a bear would be, a mother bear, you know, make sure my son is not going to prison. My son isn't going to be homeless. And so you have this, all this energy that I had. I, you know, I don't know if I ever have that again. And that, they so resented that. You think that they would say, oh, this woman is so passionate and cares. You know, they were saying, yeah. I'm so desperate. I'm so overwhelmed. Don't bring any more children here. I can't take it. It's truly um, so sad. So sad for our children and for our families. It's like, don't bring me any more problems. I have enough on my plate. And now you dump this on me, I'll show you. That's, That's right. exactly how it was. That was going to be my next question. Like, what do you think is going on with social workers? I have some theories about that, but it sounds like you're saying one of the things, Luanda, is just like, I have too much on my plate. Don't bring me one more thing. Exactly. Exactly. Your son going AWOL was your problem. You tried to make it our problem, which got me into trouble. So now I'm going to make it your problem and go after your other children. I mean, of course, they will never admit that. God knows they will never admit that. But that's exactly how it played out. And I agree. There's a desperation that I think people are not picking up on. They're not noticing that um, burnt out, overwhelmed worker. Mm -hmm. And how they lash out at more vulnerable people. It's easier to exploit folks who are not expecting it, who um, are not prepared for that. You're already overwhelmed because you mm -hmm. already have children who have many challenges. So you're overwhelmed by your own personal challenges and trying to raise them. And then when you have this negative energy coming at you from people who are extremely desperate, and really mm -hmm. burnt out and unsupervised and you don't have access to their supervisors and to the leadership and there's just sort of a uh, rogue and uh, on their own and can say anything and do anything. Right, exactly. It's unbelievable. But yes, I think you definitely have to look at it, a burnt out, desperate worker. And I too was punished. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, when one of my, you're talking about going AWOL, now you're talking about another son now who went AWOL and it was your fault. You're a bad mother. I said, excuse me. Yes. And this was another worker. So it's like they support each other. They support that negative behavior traits. And I said to this person who I went to, it's a whole nother piece at the county as I filed a complaint against another worker. And then that person jumped on me. I said, what is this? You all are mm -hmm. ganging up on vulnerable parents? Is that what you all do? Yeah. Another piece of this, you mm -hmm. mentioned the, the, that they're overwhelmed and burned out, but the other element is you combine that with near absolute power. So, for example, it's been decades since uh, this story, but there was one caseworker in another state, not Pennsylvania, who allegedly told several parents, quote, I have the power of God. Mm -hmm. Whether or not he said it, that happens to be true. 
they yes. do have the power mm -hmm. of God. Mm -hmm. And you give somebody godlike power to make life and death decisions over mm -hmm. families to expect them to exercise self-restraint is more than can be expected of most human beings because rarely is the power of God accompanied by the wisdom of Solomon. I want to add a couple of more pieces to this picture. So, Richard, you mentioned on the last episode how the system has both a class bias and a racial bias, and you were giving yes. us a number of studies around that. So one thing that I want to add to this picture is that some of that, you know, bias and mistreatment isn't actually personal. So it's not like personal from social worker to social worker, although we have an experience of it as personal because we experience it through social workers. But the system actually supports, right, their middle class or upper middle class bias on what it means to be a parent mm -hmm. in the face of everybody else, right? So not only is there this unchecked power that you were talking about, mm -hmm. Richard, but there's also that, you know, the system supports basically a and that, there's not always a class divide like in the in your cases typically there there wasn't maybe in most cases there's a class divide between workers and mm -hmm. parents and so the system supports whatever the workers interpretation of good parenting is and there's well, a class race bias in that as well here's a classic example of it and how it plays out throughout the system there is a program philadelphia has it it goes under various names around the country, but it's usually called court-appointed special advocates. Mm -hmm. And these are volunteers who are empowered by the court to investigate families. They get a quickie training course, and then suddenly they're sent in to make these decisions. Mm. Now, remember, they're volunteers. Who can afford to volunteer? Not somebody who's holding down two jobs to make ends meet. Not somebody who's extremely poor. So exactly. So what you get are overwhelmingly white middle class people. So think about this. You have a whole program that sends white middle class amateurs into families that are overwhelmingly poor and disproportionately families of color. Literally, their only qualification is their white middle class status. Almost nobody has even given any thought to that. By the way, there are studies which show that the program does not work and simply prolongs foster care, which should come as no surprise. But an excellent law review article on this referred to CASA, court-appointed special advocates, as an exercise of white supremacy. And CASA is the quintessence of the bias that permeates the system. Yeah, thank you for that. And so I want to add, like, two more things to the picture. So one is that I love that you were saying CASA as a white supremacy tool. There are two aspects of trauma that I want to like kind of throw into the mix here of other pieces of the picture. So one is that a lot of social workers who I know were either in foster care or separated from their parents themselves mm -hmm. and actually become social workers because they want to change the system. So they actually get into the system to make a difference and believing that they can change it to then experience whatever I, I know a bunch of burnt out social workers who then became activists and advocates because um, some of them we know in common, um, right? Like after 10 or 30 years mm -hmm. of doing that, which psychologists call moral injury, right? Like being asked to do things that are extremely painful that are not the, making the difference they signed up to do, they then kind of burn out and go in a different direction. So 
if they have an experience of being separated from their own parents, what happens is that their trauma gets triggered, right? So there's that moment in which the parents' trauma is getting triggered and the social worker's trauma is getting triggered as well. So it's kind of this beast that's eating itself. The other thing I wanted to add is that in social work, they talk a lot about this concept of parallel process. Mm -hmm. So typically, if the social worker is treating the parents like crap, they're also being treated like crap by their supervisors mm -hmm. yes. and their supervisors by their supervisors that. and their supervisors by their supervisors. Right. So, I, and I wanted to say that to kind of do justice to social workers because there isn't a social worker in the room right now. The next time that we cover the child welfare system, we'll make sure we have a, a social worker around the table with us. And social workers in Philly can have, I think, up to 10 cases each. And if 10 cases mean families, which means if you have, you know, five or eight children in a case, that could be up to 80 children, right? So they're overworked, stretched, the burnout, there's all those factors. But there's also a factor of personal trauma and how that plays into the picture. The other piece that I want to, and I'm coming back to your CASA statement, Richard, you said something really important on your show, Richard. I'm going to bring it back here. You said it's not that the system is broken because it was founded in bigotry. Mm -hmm. And you gave us this beautiful excerpt of the history of the system. And the seed of it was taking away children from Catholic families to place them with good Protestant families. Mm -hmm. And in right? particular, mm -hmm. poor Catholic immigrant families in New York City. That's right. Um, this, yes. This is the story of a man named Charles Floring Brace, or as I call him, the bigot who created foster care as we know it today. Mm. He hated and feared the immigrant poor. He thought they were genetically inferior, and yet their children could be saved if they were shipped from the streets of New York City out to homes in the South and the Midwest. That was the origin of so-called orphan trains, which included a great many children who were not orphans. Their poverty was confused with neglect. His fear and loathing of the immigrant poor was the roots of the current system. And we have seen that more than 150 years later. It is still at the root of a lot of how this system functions. Yes. So I want to add to that, right? Another thing that I've really been dwelling over uh, heavily for the last week is that when we talk about societal trauma or intergenerational trauma, Right. So the term intergenerational trauma mm -hmm. was first created by Native Americans because they were seeing that ever since the beginning of mm -hmm. like genocide and colonialism, they were seeing mm -hmm. generation after generation getting torn through addiction and mental illness. So mm -hmm. Native Americans are actually the first that started doing the work on intergenerational trauma. More recently, there's epigenetics and there's a bunch of like mm -hmm. research that is backing up this concept that trauma can actually be handed down genetically from mm -hmm. one generation to the next. So, and when we talk about racial trauma, we tend to talk about intergenerational trauma, like the trauma of Native Americans for colonialism or African Americans because of enslavement. But there's mm -hmm. one piece that we don't talk about, which is for white folk to enslave, we had to be wounded ourselves. So there's intergenerational yes. trauma that whites brought from Europe based in the torture chambers right. and the Inquisition yeah. of Europe mm -hmm. of the Middle Ages that folks from Europe brought to the United States. So when you think about 
what what's the dude's name uh the outrageous Charles Lauren Brace. Yeah, there you go. So thinking about Charles Lauren Brace, like what trauma was he holding that he was avoiding in his white saviorism? Well, right? part of it was that he had been in Europe, saw all the revolutions of 1848 and was terrified that it would happen here. So it was quite explicit. The other thing I think is important to talk about in terms of trauma, because that has become misused in some quarters, not here, as a buzzword or buzz phrase in the field. Everything is supposed to be trauma-informed, and you know there are all these adverse childhood experiences. But the most important thing to understand there is you can't fight trauma with trauma. That's and right. one of the things I find frustrating is people talk about children are traumatized by all these adverse childhood experiences. Well, one of the worst adverse childhood experiences you can experience is being torn from everyone you know and love Absolutely. and thrown into foster care. Absolutely. And somehow yes. that trauma is forgotten. Yes. Absolutely. And so what we have, the result is this system of what, you know, Sandy Bloom would call trauma reenactment. And it's trauma reenactment at different scales, right? So what you just described for your families is at a personal scale and a family scale. But then organizations are repeating trauma, right? Because you have a bunch of people working in organizations where they're experiencing this over and over again because they're not dealing just with your family or your family. They're dealing with 50 families a day or more, right? And then you have the system as a whole, the system as a whole, meaning the child welfare system, and then the system as a whole, which is this child welfare system with all its other branches outside. So there's basically this wheel. In, in my book, I call it an industry of pain, mm -hmm. right? We're just like we are renegotiating and repackaging pain, and some people are making money off of it, for sure. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. That's the driving force, one of them. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a major, the money. People, when they talk about money, they only say, uh, you know, the, the common thing, since you triggered me, but I was triggered by that part. It's so much I wanted to say, of course, this is Jasmine speaking, but the doing it for the money. I think people are not paying attention to the money. They call it trillion-dollar children. Yeah. And how these children are funding the systems and how the systems are interconnected and how the pharmaceutical industry makes uh, its billions and the residential facilities make theirs. And it's just unbelievable. Back to the desperation. I want to go back to that part yeah. because and then tie it into job security. I think in some reptilian way, part of the brain, uh, when we get uh, so desperate that we do some of the most heinous acts is the desperation that some of the workers also have. I mean, you have those who are undermining and trying to, they're overwhelmed and they're trying to keep children out from coming in the system. Yeah. And then you have those who are doing everything possible to bring them in. And with all of the, if you think of the movements, if you think of the recovery movement, that people who were former consumers, institutions are now organizing and pushing back and demanding uh, budgets for themselves and making sure that there are good medications that are available with the researchers, working with the researchers and are doing phenomenal work, that kind of pressure. So, and what are they doing? Closing institutions. Uh, if you look at other movements, look at the incarceration movements, the reentry movements, those folks coming out of prison, 
ex-felons, been there 20, 30, some 40 years, are organizing, coming into the community, getting huge budgets. People are writing books left and right. But if you look at what's happening to the workforce of people who are used to people being institutionalized, people used to having children with disabilities, they put them away, you know, and you never saw them again. People would say, Mm -hmm. oh, just leave them if your child had a disability. And now, to me, there's a desperation, a hidden desperation that is occurring that is causing people to panic. You have to have a certain amount of people in the system to keep it going, to let people tire for folks to get their pensions. You know, people are com- there are not enough jobs in America. Jobs are going overseas, etc. So I see that connection, that financial desperation and the movements of closing institutions with folks trying to control this one last antiquated draconian institution, child welfare and child mental health. I just want to add uh, one piece, Richard, and you'll go right next around the desperation, because I have like a little confession here to make, because I feel like I'm a recovering saviorist, right? Like when I started Mm. this work 20 years ago, I thought I was going to make a difference. And I stayed in the work to make a difference, but no longer because I'm trying to fix people. And I think the desperation that you mentioned, Jasmine, Mm -hmm. isn't just a financial desperation. Mm -hmm. It's a desperation to escape one's own pain. Oh, yes. Like, that's what makes you desperate like that. Like, when your trauma is kicking, right, and it's painful, like, what we do is we try, and I'm going to say we mainly for white saverism and white folk, but it's not only white folk. But I'm going to own our crap right now. White saviorism comes from a need to escape our own pain mm-hmm. by trying to fix other people's pain. And I think one of the things we have to really come to terms with, if we want to get serious about shifting the system, is why are we in the work we're in? Oh, I definitely. That's a good question. But I always think, but why are they causing so much pain then? It's like it's more like revenge for some folks. They're really not seeing you for who you are. Doesn't matter. Foster parent, adoptive parent, biological, doesn't matter. You're taking care of children. It's as if their inner child was triggered. Yeah, and they're it rem- is. They're remembering some harm that was done to them, and now you become the boogeyman that, that, that's exactly that harmed them. And I used to look at folks like, hey, wake up. What is wrong with you? Why are you treating me this way? And why are you coming in my home, snatching my shower curtain? What are you looking for? The trauma, it seemed like childhood, unresolved childhood trauma manifested, especially once you start to study it and watching people, how they're behaving and what they're saying and the lying in court. And I just was constantly shocked at all of these different behaviors of this, uh, like you said, the absolute power and how it corrupts. Absolutely. People have gone insane with power and control and unresolved childhood issues that they're able to, they're so triggered by it. And then they're so out of control because the lack of supervision and the lack of cameras and surveillance and in antiquated systems that are not uh, surveilling and interviewing enough like they do in other systems. You know, there's more, even in prisons, you can be a felon and commit crimes. And if you're injured inside of jails, sue the jails and sue the prison system and get money. I've heard at least a, a 20, 40 times, but foster parents and adoptive parents, we're not allowed to sue. We can't sue for damages because people have autonomy. So that's creating systems where people are above the law. Yeah. 
it's triggering me to hear this because I went through this and what I'm hearing is, well, the social worker is not necessarily a bad person, but she had some sort of trauma in her life and she inflicted it on me. And I'm sorry, I don't buy that. Mm -hmm. I can't. I can't give you an excuse for how you victimized me. For what? Because you had trauma? So if that's the truth, okay, you had trauma. How do you deal with that? What do you do? I just can't with this piece right now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. when there, there are any number of times when people have said, uh, have talked about the ill motivation of caseworkers or people in the system. And I've said, no, it's much worse than that. They mean well at least in their own minds. Because if somebody is ill-motivated, you can appeal to their conscience to get them to change. If they think they're doing the right thing, it's that much harder to get them to change. That's combined with the financial incentive issue, which can be quite subtle in the sense that in particular, the financial incentives for many private agencies, typically, They are paid for each day they hold a child in care. That's right. And of course, they will tell you, we never even think about that. (laughs) And in some senses, on a conscious level, they don't. It's not as if they sit in a basement someplace and like Montgomery Burns on The Simpsons, rub (laughs) their hands with glee because another child is coming through the door. Rationalization is powerful. They persuade themselves that all those children really need to be there and really need to be there for a long, long time. But the way we know this isn't true is that in the few places that change the financial incentives, so the private agencies are not paid for each day they hold a child in foster care, foster care tends to plummet. So we know that the rationalization, that they have rationalized this, and financial incentives in that sense do make a difference. And I'll add something, Richard. I uh, interviewed, I'm going to say, this is going to be the last thing I'm going to say on the problem side, and then we'll shift to kind of where do we go from here. I feel you, Luanda. But I even interviewed um, a court secretary who told me that every time, there was a certain time of the year where judges got called in from Philly into Harrisburg, and the judges whose quotas were low who removed like were stronger for family reunification and had lower like levels of child removal mm-hmm. knew that when they got to Harrisburg, they were going to get like a, a reprimanding and that literally there were targets and there were pressures from Harrisburg to judges to keep certain numbers high. Oh, yeah. um, oh yes. Just this past week, I saw a story happens to some extent all over the country. This one was out of Fort Worth, Texas. One judge was known for actually following the law, essentially, and not taking children when it wasn't necessary, not rubber stamping, and refusing to appoint CASAs because the program doesn't work and it's biased. He was removed by his fellow judges from child welfare cases. At least two cases in New York City during the Giuliani administration. Family court judges were not reappointed by Giuliani because they followed the law and did not uh, rubber stamp whatever the child welfare agency uh, said. Yeah. So I want to shift gears for a second. Mm -hmm. So like shaking off, like the the trauma all over the place, like it's easy to get triggered in in this work and especially for folks who have personal experiences. This is really intense, right? So 
shifting gears for a second, what would a transform system even look like? Like if we could just kind of shake off the everything that's wrong and just envision for a second what a transform system would look like, what would that be? Well, this is Jasmine. So I have some suggestions. Let me just say this. I don't think the systems are going to change without demanding that they change. So we have to, as you know, I have to go back to Frederick Douglass. Power concedes nothing without a demand. We have to demand that they change. And because I don't think they're going to change on their own. But how it would look is when people start to do what we're doing. Thanks to you, Rita. You're bringing us together. Folks who should have been together, but we haven't been. And so that's why we have to make sure we're not part of the problem. We have to unite ourselves we have to organize, strategize, and then concretize those plans once we come together. The challenge we have to ask ourselves is how come we're not coming together? So once we start to unite, even if we disagree in some areas, each of us has seen things differently. That's right. So we come together. We then help to educate others in our community. And then we make sure that our systems are safe. These systems are unsafe and un there's unfair treatment and they're un safe conditions. And so we have to make people aware of them. So I see all of us are becoming authors and going around the country and making sure that we're clear about what we need to see changed in our systems, but they have to become safe. So how do we make things safe? So I, I propose that we have to have surveillance. We have to have what I call parent DNA um, because we have DNA. So many crimes have been solved in the other world, in the criminal world where, where there's bloodshed. Since ours is psychological warfare, the kind of damage that was inflicted on Lawanda and I, see, are invisible. We have the wounds. We probably have them for the rest of our lives. Everything we do has to be about being healed and well. We have right. to practice wellness strategies for the rest of our lives. And so people don't see our scars. We have to help them to understand our scars. And so we have to get well in order to do that. But if we have the parent DNA where we make sure that there's surveillance, we have to have it in our homes. We have to insist that the systems have them, especially when you're interviewing our children. And so that we can, so we have to change laws. The laws have to change because we have to be able to sue. But before we do all of that, we have to come together and we have to, people have to see us as credible. And therefore we have to learn how to communicate our challenges. You know, but you can't do that when you're so wounded, see, because the blood is spewing and you don't see it but it's spewing all over everyone. So as we continue to heal, then we can continue to be clear. It's very important to me. You know, I said it the last time and I'm going to continue. I have to learn as I'm learning to be clear and consistent about my message. I see that Richard and Lawanda, both of you are, and I'm continuing to learn to do that. So I think that it's going to be outside, a bottom up. That's how it's going. The system's going to change. I think if we remove the financial incentives, because let's face it, you make more money breaking families apart than keeping them together. There's more money to be made. You have the foster care system, the residential treatment facilities, all that money to be made. If you remove that, you know, as a motivator, then I have to find some other reason to do my job. Let me put it this way. If you make reuniting families as profitable as breaking families apart, that's going to be a big step right there. Because right now, 
there's really no incentive. If I'm making money off of the system, if I'm profiting from the system, there's no incentive for me to change. Why would I change mm -hmm. something? Doesn't work for you. I don't care if it works for you. It works for me. But let's switch that around and say, okay, you're no longer making money off of this. I'm going to give you X amount of dollars if you successfully reunite families. But if you continue to take them apart, you're not going to make any money. Well, then that might change my mindset. You mean I can make more money by keeping people apart than tearing them apart? Okay, I got you. Okay, as a matter of fact, the state of Illinois did exactly that back in the late 1990s. When they made the change, before they made the change, they had 50,000 children in foster care on any given day. Today, they have 17,000 children in foster care on any Wonderful. given day. Still See? too many, but it shows you what just, they did exactly that. They told the private agencies. They didn't quite make it better, but they at least equalized the incentives for keeping children home and returning them home. The other step that I think is crucial is turning child protective services into child poverty services. I mentioned when I was on the program last week, all these studies would show that just a little bit of extra money, I call it the transformative power of cash, reduces the number of children in the system. Raise the minimum wage a dollar an hour, reduce what agencies call child neglect by 10%. Provide housing vouchers for homeless families, removals get cut in half. So turning it into child poverty services is essential and also leveling the playing field so that families can fight back. And that means high quality legal representation for families. Yes. One of the reasons New York City takes away children at about one third the rate of Philadelphia is that in New York City, families have access to that kind of representation. Wow. And to add to that, I'd like to say that I think we should definitely have what I call family preservation services. Mm -hmm. If you notice, we don't have such a thing. I write about the conflicts of interest that we have. So you have the same agency that removes children, also supposed <laughs> to do the school services, is supposed yep. to do the family reunification yes. services, yep. is also paying the lawyers. You know, it's ridiculous. Just an example of mm -hmm. that, excuse me. So Community Legal Services, that does a phenomenal job representing parents in, fam mm -hmm. in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. right? In fact, Richard, you mentioned them on your show. Yes, I did. Community Legal Services does a phenomenal job representing parents. But who's their major funder? That's right. DHS. Exactly. So see, that's one of the biggest. <laughs> and so when, like, you know, they are not going to do the movement building work. That's right? correct. They're willing to do the case one at a time. They're right. not the, willing to look for the patterns. They're not willing to do the movement building work. Because of because the perverted incentives. Yes. So remove right. the budget. Universal law says what you concentrate on expands. Yeah. So if the majority of what you're doing in terms of what you're looking at, if you're looking at deficits, of course, you're going to see more deficits. If you break that system up so that <laughs> there is, a, I'd say if you want to start out, Give the 50% then, since DHS, let's look at Philly, has a billion-dollar budget, annual budget, not including the multi-millions that are donated by many organizations. Split that in half and create the Family Preservation Center. So mostly all of the family services would come from those Family Preservation Services. So when we need a lawyer, when we need advocacy, when we need support, when we need education, for example, training foster parents. 
training foster parents should come from other foster parents and, co and come from organizations that are there to train and support them. But right now, there's such a huge conflict of interest. And once we break that, we're going to start breaking the system, those perverted incentives. So the other thing I wanted to highlight, which is kind of going where you're going as well, is that we also have to break down the fake belief that a person can change the system, right? Like that all the stuff that we tell, like one person can change the world, uh. like people don't change system. Like a person doesn't change a system. A social worker who begin, becomes a social worker doesn't change a system. A foster parent who becomes a foster parent doesn't change a system. It takes the movement building. Absolutely. Because systems right. push back oh. and easily chew yes. people and spit them right out. Violently, right? too. <laughs> Absolutely. Could I yes, I mean, a great example of that is the foster parent I cited on the program last week, Mary Callahan in the state of Maine. Mm -hmm. He was the linchpin of efforts that ultimately made significant improvements in that system. She could never have done it alone. She did it by saying, I am so fed up with this that I'm going to find other people and form a movement to demand this kind of change. And I wanted to add one thing, if I could, related to Lawanda's point, because I do believe you're definitely right on, Lawanda. There is, and I've seen it more often than I care to even, I mean, this is part of my nightmares that I continue to have after all these years. There is a personality and behavior trait that is in the system, that is violent, that is dangerous. When I study narcissistic personality disorder and I study people who have severe untreated schizophrenia and borderline personality traits, let me tell you, I have met those folks. And so there is a dangerous element within the system that is part, as I said, part of my nightmares and probably part of yours as well. So the system has a thug, a violent, dangerous thug within that. There's that element. That, that's a whole different, when I would come across that type, I mean, these folks scare you to death. You think the streets didn't do that to me, but in the system. So this type of personality trait that's very dangerous. And is, I mean, when you start Googling and looking up and learning the definitions, they meet them to a T and allowing that type of personality trait loose on vulnerable, at-risk families is a very dangerous thing. So whatever we do, we have to do something about those dangerous folks who are in how the system, we, the sociopaths. How do we deal with them? Well, I know that's why I said we got to have the cameras because when you go to explain yes. it, right, you go to explain this sociopath who just, you said, my God, you're everything. Everything on this list is checked off and people don't believe you. So now they've got the power differential you got all the negative, people don't believe you. We have to find a way, just as people have done with, say, police who are psychopathic and sociopathic. So you have that, I mean, they're slick and uh, sharp. And uh, I don't know, but my God, are they dangerous? If you had one sociopath loose in a community, could terrorize that entire community. Just one, because we see them. Oh, you just turn on any of the shows, any of the investigative shows, when they have the sociopaths, terrorize the entire community. And so we have those same, even if you had a few in a county, could terrorize hundreds of families. So we have to do something. In our strategy, there has to be a way to catch that, just as they have done with the police. Catching that so that when you can show the video or listen to the tape, because when I would explain to people what people say, oh, they didn't say that. I said, oh, my God. 
They say to me, why would they say that? Why would they do what? Oh my God, I hear that all the time. Because they're not well. Because you have a sociopath in the field. Richard, what's your take on this? Well, for decades, actually, in our due process agenda has been something that every interview and every investigation needs to be taped. It's been in our agenda so long that it used to say on audio cassette recorders. But the, point, but the other thing I do want to mention is I don't want to leave without noting how many people in the system, because the, the flip side of that, and it's harder, to, it's always harder to do good than to do bad. The flip side is all the social workers who have contacted me over the years saying, I'm fed up. I hate what some of my workers do to families. I hate the pressures the system puts me under. How can I help fight this from within? There are a lot of really good people on the front lines also. And what do you tell them? What do you tell them? I I tell them, uh, well, first of all, I refer to the the page on our website, nccpr.org, on how to fix the system. The first thing I ask is, are you able to talk to journalists in your area? Can you speak to them on the record? Can you speak to them off the record? Can you give them a sense of this? Can you help them provide context? So generally, what I tell them to do is to whatever extent they can speak out about this because their voice, because of their very position, brings them a credibility that will prompt people in the general public and uh, journalists to listen. I agree. I want to add to that as well. So interesting. So thank you for that, because you do trigger me to talk about the whistleblower. And you asked about solutions now. There has to be whistleblower protection. For Mm -hmm. folks to come forward, you know, you have all these perverted incentives. You have these very violent folks with these very violent, um, untreated, unstable personality types, sometimes in positions of power who will punish the workers themselves, the good workers. I agree. I have seen I wouldn't have believed it had I not met these good some of these great workers. I've seen that happen. Oh, my God. I've met these folks. I said, oh, my God. I've seen workers who are compassionate. Yes. In in like in 24 hours. That's right. So I've seen them get punished, too. I said, oh, I'm not the only one being punished. But we have to have whistleblower protection for them because you have your livelihood on the line. That's what they're doing. When they come forward, you're putting your livelihood on the line. And people are not going to do that. Common sense will tell you not to. But once we make sure that there are whistleblower protections within the system, and also we've got to find a way for more foster parents to come forward. So as we begin to show how they're punished as well, because even though people will say to me, only the social worker is a whistleblower. So I disagree with that. I think foster and adoptive parents, as more of them come forward and really talk about what they've seen, start organizing and really speaking out, then people will see from the different angles. But there are no incentives for foster parents either to come. That's why you don't see them coming forth. That's why they're not here. So it's organizing from the different angles and then organizing together. The bigger picture, bigger picture. And you also need to have parent advocacy. Parents need to know you're not alone. Give them a checklist. Don't ever meet with a social worker by yourself have someone else there and you can just, yeah, I would even tell them, you know, you don't have to be a part of the meeting, just go into another part of the room and just observe. So you can write down and maybe you can record what's going on. That's the observer, right? So the The observer, because so many people, it's like, Oh, we never told you that. We never said that. Oh yeah. You you (laughs) you made that up. Yes. 
Yeah. That's not how it happened. And because nobody was there. Right. No witnesses. Who could I? Nobody was there but the wall. I tell parents, have somebody there. for, Always. And they're going to push back. But that's your right to have your support system there. They're trying to rake you over the coals. Be prepared. Absolutely. Folks, I agree. This has been an amazing conversation. It's gone so quickly. One minute, each of you closing. Jasmine speaking, I'll say uh, there is hope for positive change and victory is certain. Stay optimistic, encouraged. Make sure you stay physically and mentally well and strong, grateful and prayerful. Get engaged, get connected, support others and increase peace and justice in the world. Make personal sacrifice, advocate and tell your personal stories. Don't ever stop doing that. And whatever you do, don't ever stop fighting for your children. Whatever you do, don't ever stop. This is LaWanda. For parents who may be going through this situation, the most important thing is do not isolate. You are not alone. Mm -hmm. There are people out there who are willing to listen to you, willing to go to bat for you. Don't be afraid to reach out for help. I'm going to warn you. You're going to have to probably reach outside of your close friends and your family because people think DHS, they're the good guys, and they're, they're going to tend not to believe you. I promise you there are people out there who will believe you and will support you. I think from a systems perspective, as I said last week, I'm actually more optimistic than I've been at almost any time in 45 years, precisely because there are people like Jasmine and Lawanda out there now who are organizing. There are people all over the country who are doing this. There is a newfound understanding of the trauma of what this does, needless removal does to children. Tragically, that understanding may come too late to some of the people who are listening and to others across the country. But for future generations, I do think we are beginning to see real Yes, And I just want to highlight movement building and organizing is what our collective power is. And the more we connect, the more, as Londa was saying, we remember we're not crazy, we're not alone, mm -hmm. and there are some patterns that reveal themselves that are absolutely clear. So thank you for being with us. Thank you, Jasmine and Lawanda and Richard for being with us. Thank I feel you. like we were just in a thank time you. warp. I could have been here for another half an hour. Mm, thank you um, for your leadership. Thank you. Thank you. For your courage. Too. And I appreciate your appreciation. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.